Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of 15 Minutes with Dr. Norfleet. Today, for the first time ever, we have a repeat. We have a guest that we had last year, and she has graced us with our presence, with her presence, um, for a second time to continue a very important conversation. So please give a warm, warm welcome back to Dr. Lily McTarian. Hey, Mike. Thank you. I'm, I'm touched and honored to be back. No, yeah, we, we've definitely taken a pulse on some of our guests and what has intrigued our listeners. And um, from myself and the CEO, I think we've really enjoyed your conversation about trauma and art therapy and healing. And um, I look forward to kind of diving deeper into a conversation about trauma treatment with you today. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do just to refresh our, our listeners and kind of get us started? Sure. So I'm currently a clinical psychologist and most of the time in primary care mental health at the VA working with veterans. Pretty large percentage of the specialty care work I do when I'm not doing primary care is for PTSD because I'm nationally certified in some uh, specific treatments like CPT, which is cognitive processing therapy. And then I've had training in like ACT and PE, which is acceptance-based and prolonged exposure-based therapies. And then I'm always from natural curiosity reading up about supportive treatments like how I talked about with art therapies, but also VIM that is doing research on psilocybin assisted treatments and um, you know ketamine assisted treatments and um, sort of different approaches and kind of have been reading a lot more on somatic approaches as well as I try to take a customized approach with my patients but it's a little bit of what I focus on at the VA and when I'm not doing that in primary care I'm often seen whoever walks in but a lot of people who have medical issues like you know chronic pain recovering from back surgery who benefit from therapy and i find it interesting how often trauma is a component for those cases as well little overview i appreciate that um yeah it sounds like you're very well versed in a lot of different um treatment modalities and that you are very like versatile in your ability to work with your patients do you have a favorite out of like cpt or act or prolonged um exposure like do you have any that you just personally enjoy mm-hmm. well i enjoy figuring out what's going to be the right fit for what patient and like, I really have enjoyed the process of learning um, which questions to ask very early on to be able to suss that out. I mean, I am currently really enjoying more, like including more somatic work. Um, I've become really interested on that. I think we're in a very interesting junction with the research on that. Um, I'm also lucky you're saying I'm well-versed, but it's, I'm lucky to be out of VA and amongst researchers and coworkers that are 
kind of leading the cutting edge on these things. So I, I stay updated without having to put in too much effort outside of work. And I'm lucky to have met some of the people I did. But yeah, I mean, the somatic work has become very interesting to me because I have a lot of patients I work with who they have plenty of insight into what's going on. They really understand and and they pretty quickly can catch on to which thoughts are unhelpful. And I mean, I, I absolutely still think cognitive work is very important. Um, you know, I think my background in CPT has helped me to understand how to work with clients, what we call stuck points in trauma. So like stuck points would be, um, these like very similar to core beliefs, but they're essentially these beliefs that developed as a result of the trauma. They're, they tend to be very black and white because, you know, when we're in survival mode, we, our brain likes to simplify things that way and it likes to have a rule book. And so, you know, it'll be things like, you know, I'm, I'm not saying the world is always a dangerous place. You can never trust people. Um, they're, they're very absolutist thoughts. And so, you know, I still like to identify those kinds of things with patients. And I pull from CPT a lot to be able to do that and work with those thoughts. But I think CPT gets very concrete with like some of the worksheets. It's like, what percentage do you believe this thought? And some clients really don't respond well to going that detailed or having that much homework to do. So I kind of pull from like the CPT stuff to identify and map out what beliefs they developed and how that impacts their value system. And that's when I pull from ACT. So in ACT, you want to identify the patient's values. And I think trauma can really make you forget that you're a person who had values and you're prioritizing these ideas of safety over those values all the time. So I pull from act to do that but then the somatic work is where i feel like the real active juicy ingredients are at for trauma patients because i think any provider who works with ptsd or just trauma spectrum disorders will tell you that there's a very heavy physiological component to the symptoms you know your nervous system 101 is always going to be important when you're working with trauma. So it's educating patients on how to actually feel when their body is activated. Because I always tell my patients, your mind will lie to you very easily and very quickly. It'll say, I'm fine, I'm fine. Because when you have chronic PTSD, your baseline is pretty active. You're you're in fight or flight, you're hypervigilant a lot of the time. So I'll ask my patients, instead of asking them, do you feel hypervigilant or do you feel anxious? I'll ask them a question I like from somatic world is like, are you finding that you're often clenching your jaw, clenching your shoulder blades, clenching your gut, so taking a deep breath is hard, or even making fists a lot of the time? Um, And do you have chronic pain in these areas? And you will get very interesting answers when you frame the question that way. 
and, and, and that's when patients will be like, wait, I, I do do that. And then we have an opening to say, hmm, okay, this is where we can manually go in and start helping you encourage some of that parasympathetic regulation, which is just basically helping your system get out of fight and flight and get into a more relaxed state. So it's a little overview of the different treatment approaches. I mean, I don't want to belabor the point or lecture, but I hope that gives you an idea of what I like from each one. No, I love that. And I really, one thing that stuck out to me is your approach with um, kind of reframing questions and your ability to get um, information um, instead of uh, just using the classic questions. I think far too often, depending on what population you work with, um, we intellectualize and we use big words and, you know, asking someone, are you hypervigilant? That might not mean anything to someone. Um, So I like your approach of asking more targeted questions that are easier for someone to, to answer and to reflect on. And I know that that's, you know, that's something I'm assuming you had to do at the union rescue mission and at other places that you've worked, but that's a, it's cool to hear that you are able to do that in the VA because I, I know there's such a large percentage of individuals who have some form of trauma that they've gone through. Well, what's interesting, you brought the Union Rescue Mission. I know we've both done our stints there. But, yeah, and there was a ton of trauma there, too. And, and a lot of, you know, a lot of, I actually did work with some homeless veterans that came through and we got them connected to the VA. Luckily, the VA has um, good services to support housing nowadays. But one of the things I look back on, because that was kind of the beginning of my training. At this point, I think it's been almost a decade since I've been there. Mm -hmm. And back then, I was the complete opposite of somatic therapy. In fact, I remember my supervisor at that time, which I think you've worked with as well, Dr. Aviera, he's big on somatic work. And he used to bring up that word so often, we had like a running joke of like, oh, can you tally how many times he's going to bring up somatic, somatic. And now I'm like, become him. I'm like, oh my gosh, (laughs) he had it right. He clearly understood this deeper thing about how to, you know, help people and when you start working with trauma, I think one of the things you notice in trauma and somatic work is just how much it's a spectrum and how little the DSM captures that. Because I think the DSM goes into like this specific diagnosis with checklist PTSD. And yes, some patients meet criteria very cleanly for that. In fact, because so much of it was researched and normed on veteran populations, for me, it's yeah, many of my combat vets fit PTSD criteria very neatly. But then when you start seeing things through the framework of the nervous system and trauma and how humans are adapting and surviving psychologically based on what they've had to endure, you will start seeing all of it differently. You'll start seeing chronic pain differently. You'll start seeing... OCD differently. You start to see um, complex trauma and how that presents and all the different labels we put on people who have these like complicated multi-trauma histories. 
and you start to understand it from that nervous system safety perspective. And then I think it changes your empathy, how you pathologize or when you really don't, um, and then how you view medical care. And I think one of the things I'm so grateful for working in the VA's integrated health system in primary care is that I think more so than other healthcare systems, we have a pretty strong understanding of that relationship. You know, I will not be the first VA psychologist to say this, but many times patients with chronic pain, even if there is a clean medical reason for it, it's mitigated and moderated by their nervous system because if you have an injury, but you're always hypervigilant, your system is activated, yes, it's going to cause more inflammation in the body. Yes, it's going to make your chronic pain worse. And then you're in a feedback loop because now you're frustrated about the chronic pain and you enter into a battle with your own body. And so, you know, so much of the work is even when it's not with the label PTSD, you're still addressing like, how is this underlying part of you that doesn't feel safe in your own body at the grocery store when you're socializing, whatever the triggers are for you? How is that moderating your experience, your nervous system? And how do we widen your window of tolerance so that you can start connecting with the world instead of just surviving it? Right. And I think that's really the crucial shift is increasing a sense of connection and decreasing this sense of resistant survivalism. Wow. That is that's kind of deep. Uh, but I think it, when you look at it, you know, it's also very important. Um, and I, I connect to that a lot with some of the people I work with in the prison system. You know, we do a lot of a lot of trauma work and just starting off with grounding and body scans and getting people to connect yeah. with to you know doing cognitive processing therapy and dbt and like some of the um third wave approaches but i i do think that that is a big piece that we are starting to see in all of our journals and stuff is this conversation about like the body and the connection with the mind and yeah. how important it is and, um i think you illustrated that beautifully um and you okay. show how important it is so that is that's awesome you know i think that as you've mentioned, you kind of hinted at it, but the VA has a lot of um, researchers, clinicians, people that are devoted to advancing the field and just seeing what's out there. And I think it's a really cool place that I've never had the opportunity to work in, but I, I have heard all of the opportunity that's there. And it sounds like you've learned a lot and also added to that um, contribution yourself. Yeah, I mean, and with... I would argue with working in corrections, you learn a lot there too. And, you know, I always, I always think about someday going, going back to that because I, I did do a brief stint with corrections myself. Um, but I think the thing that I worry about with my, like, I have a lot of vets who talk to me about their experiences if they ever were in prison. And then I know when I, um, was working with a homeless population. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of co-occurrence of I mean, correctional history there as well. 
I think like worries me is like that the environment in a lot, and I, I wonder if you can speak to this, that the environment in a lot of prison systems encourages hypervigilance because they kind of, and they, some of it is valid and I think some of it is the culture of it. But I think I remember when I was working in corrections, the, the and I would run the groups, the art therapy groups, we would talk about this, was that people would say like, well, you have to be in fight or flight here because you don't know when who's going to do what and your personal space is constantly so invaded that I think there's a natural hypervigilance that happens. I mean, how do you guys cope with that? Because they're in that environment and and you're trying to support them in that. I'm wondering if you can speak to that. Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that is something I saw this week. I had a guy who come, uh, who comes from the penitentiary and he is now at a medium security where things are not as uh, rocking and rolling, as you would say. Um, but you know, what he said is that it's weird being here because not as much is happening. And he's like, I'm not mm-hmm. able to um, adjust to that environment. So I think that is, that's something that I'll probably end up speaking on in another episode, but it's, it is a lot when you're, you're exposed to that. And then you're in a new environment where that's not there. It feels weird. Whereas to us, we're like, it should feel better, but that's not how, you know, his experience is. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I understand why the it's like a lot of the time referrals i get in the referral say oh this vet's having trouble adjusting to civilian life mm-hmm. adjusting adjusting you hear that word a lot and then you'll you'll get like a some kind of provisional diagnosis of like adjustment disorder blah, blah blah and i'm like well yeah because for years they were in the service and they were essentially trained to be hypervigilant they right. they Almost every vet you talk to will tell you when I go to a restaurant or some public place, I have to identify all the exits. I have to face the exit. I don't like facing away from the door. They'll, they'll list these like pattern behaviors and stuff they were taught. You know, like I think if somebody doesn't know that, they'll be like, oh, this guy is just paranoid. And you're like, no, no, no. They were trained to be hypervigilant. And then they get, they finish their, you know, service, they're taught this hypervigilance. Uh, they're trained, in fact, to have it. This is why even when they come out, there's these behaviors you see of, you know, checking doors and wanting to face the door at restaurants, knowing all the exits in public spaces. And, you know, to somebody who's maybe not experienced with what training they go through or working with the population that they might think of these as a lot of paranoid behaviors, but um, they're really taught that. And then there's this, you know, quote unquote adjustment that the public seems to expect of them. And this was much worse for Vietnam era vets. I think the public's expectations and treatment when they came back was really devastating to their mental health, but even with like OEF, OIF vets and, you know, just, the milieu you'll see these behaviors and we expect them to adjust back to you know what we'll refer to as like civilian life really quickly mm-hmm. and actually i think one of the things that the public is still learning and this is true vet or not that anytime your nervous system has had to train into 
or endure a consistent state of being activated on guard, you know, um, in defense mode, you're not going to recognize pragmatic safety as soon as it's granted to you. Mm-hmm. We would love to. That would be great if our prefrontal brains said, oh, we're home now. Um, no more bombs going off. Or, oh, we're done with that phase of life now. Or, oh, that abusive relationship, we're out of it now. You know, whatever the trauma was that was sustained. And this is where I think the DSM fails because it really wants to have this one like targeted event. It seems to have organized itself around that. I'm like, that isn't true for many, many people. There's usually multiple events or chronic endurance of a traumatic environment, uh, frankly. And you'll see it across the board, a lot of different experiences. And then they'll get out of it. They'll leave the job. They'll leave the relationship. They'll come home from service. They'll get out of prison. They'll switch to a lower security prison. And there's this expectation because we experience our minds, you know, our prefrontal cortex through this like rational lens of, well, I'm safe. Most of these people know logically that their environment is not currently threatening them. Almost no vet actually anticipates that a combat related event is going to happen on their way to work, but their bodies, their limbic system, their nervous system is experiencing that very differently it moves a lot slower i think we expect that the speed of the prefrontal and the limbic should be aligned i wish they were i wish this in my own life all the time you know when i'm trying to decompress from an event but but they're not and this is why you know just to circle back to the somatic work this is why when we actually look at the body as a marker for how you're doing and these signals of dysregulation, these signals of activation, then we actually have a more realistic timeline of how quickly you're healing, you're adapting, and how quickly your system is actually learning, actually experientially learning, not cognitively intellectualizing. I want to really highlight that. Because I have clients who could write a dissertation on their PTSD. <laughs> but, but you're not going to feel better until you feel safer. And you can't lie your, to yourself about feeling safe. In fact, it's not something you have a lot of control over. Your body will actually tell you when it does. The thing I like to compare it to, and it's the last bit I'll say about this, but you know, for a lot of people have experienced, I think, adopting a pet from an animal shelter and you know, every so often you'll get a pet that has some kind of history of trauma. And this, of the four animals that I have now, which I think I'm past the point at which they're therapeutic and now they're the problem. But the one of them we know has a history of trauma. The, the other three, my boys, we got them very young, two dogs, one cat, they, they don't. But my female cat, they thought she was either hit by a car, abused by a... Um, a man um, based on like some of her injuries and the state she was in. And I just immediately connected with the animal and, you know, people joke that she knew I was a trauma therapist and she'd been through trauma. And so she let me take her home. But 
the thing I really learned from taking care of this cat and it really highlighted in the trauma world for me is that it didn't matter how many times I verbalized to this cat, you're safe, you're going to get fed, you're going to, nobody's going to hurt you here. Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, animals are like almost like all limbic system, you know, they, that's, that's, that's how they operate. It was whenever her system actually learned that and felt safe and it transformed how she looked, how she behaved, how she socialized. And this is what I mean. And you'll see it with animals, it's slow. This doesn't happen with like over the course of a day or two. It's usually it's months, frankly, and it depends on what kind of trauma they've been through and for how long and some symptoms last forever. And so we have to kind of look at our bodies and our limbic systems and our nervous systems this way is like, I'm supporting you at whatever pace you are learning and absorbing this newfound environment of safety. And I'm going to encourage that process rather than putting a timeline and saying, why haven't I, or why can't I? Because then you're putting pressure on a system that's already very depleted. And so no matter what approach you take to treating trauma, having and developing a sense of self-compassion and sensitivity to your bodily signals, I think is crucial. And, you know, I'm hoping that as we progress in treatment opportunities across the board, even in the prison, especially in the prison system, that we're able to kind of help them in the minimum contextualize that some of these challenges are are so valid given the environment you're in and and even when you go home and when you get out you might have some of these lingering things and to be very patient and sensitive with yourself about it i won't belabor the point further but i i'm very i'm very passionate about developing that patience and compassion because i think we live in a society that wants to rush healing and our bodies really just don't care about those external expectations. They do what they're gonna do. They're very honest. Right. No, I I I appreciate that. I think you you hit a lot of good points, um, from animals to prison to veterans to just human beings. And I, I see a lot of what you said in my work, especially like we talked about coming from different security levels or even just as staff members too, like being more hyper yeah. than your average person. Um, looking for yeah. certain the staff develops hypervigilance too. I yeah, you know, just looking for certain things, always wanting to see someone's hands, keeping your distance from people, mm -hmm. like just different things. So I, I, uh, I think what we can say here as we wrap up is you've definitely um, gone far above and beyond our expectations of guests and really explained. The work that you do and also kind of generalized it to like multiple settings. And I'm just so appreciative that you took the time out of your very busy life to come and, you know, converse with us. Um, and I said this once, I'll say it again. We'll definitely have to have you back on the show because you are uh, you're a hit and you're just you're really eloquent. You're really intelligent. And I, I appreciate everything that you've offered on both episodes. So thank you so much for everything. Thank you, Mike. I'm, I'm so, I'm so touched to hear all of that. I'm always happy to, it's always such a joy to talk to you. Well, thank you. Thank you, everyone. This is another episode of 15 minutes with Dr. Norfleet. We will kick off the new year with 
this episode and continue on with other great guests. And we look forward to having Dr. Lily back on the show. So thank you. And I hope everyone has a great rest of their week. Thank you.